Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I do want to encourage you and invite you to open it to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, This is week number three of our three-week mini-series, Prophet, Priest, and King. And we've been preparing ourselves for Easter by exploring or by looking at the person and work of Jesus. And specifically, we've been doing that by looking at the offices of Christ as Prophet, Priest, and and king. What does it mean to say that Jesus is our prophet, that Jesus is our priest, and that Jesus is our king? So today is Palm Sunday, very fitting day for us to explore the kingship of Jesus. So we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 17 in Matthew chapter 21. But before we get there, we're going to begin this morning the way we have begun the past two weeks, and that is to begin by going through a number of the questions from the Westminster Children's Catechism related to these offices of Christ. And it's three, we're, we're three weeks into this now, so I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have this memorized by now. And the questions are as follows. Number one, what offices has Christ? The answer is Christ has three offices. What are they? The offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king. And then how is Christ a prophet? Because he teaches us the will of God. How is Christ a priest? Because he died for our sins and pleads with God for us. How is Christ a king? Because he rules over us and defends us. And then why do you need Christ as a prophet? Because I am ignorant. Why do you need Christ as a priest? Because I am guilty. Why do you need Christ as a king? Because I am weak and helpless. Well, we're zeroing in on the kingship of Jesus today. The idea of Jesus as king might be the most familiar of the three titles or three offices. But I think it's good for us to drill down into this idea of kingship. What are its implications for us? Now, I'm sure at some point you've all had some kind of experience with something that doesn't fit neatly into your preconceived categories of what that thing ought to look like or be like. I guess it was New Year's Eve 2018 that uh, every year, every year on New Year's Eve, our family kind of has this tradition of going to see a, a movie on New Year's Eve, and it was 2018, New Year's Eve 2018, when we went to see as a family into the Spider-Verse. So just a bit of historical context. There used to be these things known as movie theaters, and large groups of people would go in, and they would all watch a movie together at the same time in the same room. Well, in any case, on that day, we as a family went to to see this movie. Now, we had seen all of the past Marvel movies, but this one was different. Now, we knew going in it was an animated movie, but that wasn't quite it. It just had a different feel about it. It felt kind of otherworldly. I mean, it was funny and it was suspenseful and all of that, but there was something about it that just seemed kind of different, And I think when we finished watching, the kids asked me, you know, what did I think? And I said, I'm not sure exactly what I just watched, but I loved it. And I would say that sometimes this is the same experience we have when we come to the question of what does it mean to say that Jesus is a king? It's, It's different than what we might have thought a king would look like. We have a perception 
of what a king is supposed to look like, or at least maybe we do. I'm not sure if any of England's current potential heirs inspire us with much confidence, but maybe we have an idea of what a king should be like from what we've read in books or what we've seen portrayed on the screen. I mean, a king is powerful. He reigns supreme in all his land over all his subjects. A king is brave. He leads his troops into fierce battle. We've got these ideas of what a king should be like. And those living in Israel at the time of Jesus had their own ideas about what a king would look like. Now they had a king in Herod, but everyone knew that he was just a puppet of the Roman government. And so they were waiting for this king who had been promised. They were looking for a king who was going to come and overthrow the Roman government. They were looking for a king who would give them back their independence. So many of Israel's prophecies anticipated a king who would come. And Jesus is presented as king from the very beginning. But it's clear from the very beginning that he's a different kind of king. He was, as Matthew tells us, born king of the Jews. But he was born in a stable, not a palace. Jesus' earthly life ended with his crucifixion. And it was common for those being crucified to have the charges nailed to the cross along with the individual. And in Jesus' case, as we know, the charge that was nailed to the cross said, King of the Jews. A humble birth and a humiliating death makes Jesus an unusual kind of king. So we're going to explore this this morning by looking at Matthew 21, verses 1 to 17. Hear now the reading of God's word. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Well, I want to draw your attention to three truths from this passage that help us understand that Jesus is a different kind of king. And the first truth is that Jesus is a king who is both strong and tender. You know, there's a wrong way for us to think about the triumphal entry. The wrong way to think about it is to think that Jesus somehow just got swept up in the momentum of the crowd that day. And some of the portrayals in film almost make it seem like that. Jesus has a kind of aw shucks appearance in the triumphal entry scenes. They place him on the donkey and he sort of goes along for the ride. But that doesn't really square with the accounts we find in the Gospels. In reality, what happens here is orchestrated by Jesus. Jesus sends two of his disciples into a neighboring village, telling them, go to the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied And a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now, if we didn't know better, we might think that Jesus is encouraging his disciples to engage in livestock rustling. Look, I've noticed there's this colt and its mother tied up behind a barn. Slip in and slip out and no one will be the wiser. Now, that's not really what was going on. It's possible that Jesus had prearranged this with the owners of the animals. It's also possible that these people simply counted themselves as among Jesus' followers. And he knew that when they heard that he had need of them, they would send them at once. They were happy to oblige. When we read the account in Luke's gospel... We learn that the owners did question the disciples and they did oblige and send the animals along. But whatever the situation, what we have here is an example of Jesus commandeering these animals. There's a scene in the movie Dunkirk that helps illustrate what this looks like. The movie, you may know, is set during World War II and it tells the story of a group of more than 300,000 allied soldiers trapped on a beach in France as the Germans advanced on them. Because of their size, the British destroyers were large and made for too easy a target for the German U-boats and bombers. And so with the authority of the British Empire, the British Navy requisitioned every serviceable civilian vessel, and the soldiers were safely evacuated by those means. This is what Jesus does when he requisitions these animals. The Lord needs it. He is the rightful king of all. Everything belongs to him and he can requisition it as he sees fit. It's a demonstration of his strength or his power. But you also see Jesus' strength on display in what takes place after the triumphal entry, when he clears out the temple and overturns the tables of the money changers. Now, I don't mean a a show of physical strength, as in the tables were really heavy and he managed to flip them over. 
I mean, this was a show of strength. It was a show of his rightful claim over the temple. This is not Jesus meek and mild. And when you read the account in the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus made a whip of cords and he drove them out of the temple. That doesn't fit with the soft pastel portraits of Jesus that we are so accustomed to. Now, a good question to explore might be, why did Jesus express such outrage at those engaged in selling birds and exchanging money at the temple? This is one of those events that's actually recorded in all four Gospels. And there are no contradictions between the four accounts, but they each have a slightly different point of emphasis. Now, the most obvious problem with what was happening was that the temple was being used as a place of commerce instead of a place of prayer. But that's not quite the whole picture. Here it says that Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those who sold pigeons. So we need to remember that it was Passover when this took place. And at Passover, the Israelites from all over Egypt would make their way to the temple in Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice for their sins. It wasn't always convenient to bring an animal with you, especially if you were traveling a long distance. And so some individuals began selling animals for the would-be worshipers in the temple courts. Now, the required animal, according to the law, for a sacrifice was a lamb without blemish. But what if you couldn't afford a lamb? Well, the law made provisions for that. Leviticus chapter 5 tells us, But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Pigeons were the sacrificial animals for poor people. And what might have Jesus outraged is that the merchants were taking advantage of or exploiting the poor. And it is possible to practice your religion in such a way that it excludes the poor from participating. In verse 13, it says this, He said to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now those words are taken from two Old Testament passages. The den of robbers part is taken from Jeremiah chapter 7, where Jeremiah preaches a sermon against the temple in Jerusalem and against those who placed false confidence or had false security because of the temple. They viewed it as a sort of get out of jail free card. It didn't matter what they did or how they lived as long as they were associated with the temple in some way. And here's what Jeremiah says to that. I didn't put this all on screen for you, but these are Jeremiah's words to the people of Jerusalem. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, Then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. But if you trust in deceptive words, but you trust in deceptive words to no avail, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, 
and say we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? So part of what has Jesus upset is this idea. They're treating the temple as a den of robbers. Now, the house of prayer part comes from the book of Isaiah. Listen to verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 56. And there it says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. That's where the temple was. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now, Matthew gives us the abbreviated version. My house shall be called a house of prayer. In Mark's account, we get the full quotation. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, you might say, well, that's really interesting and all, but what does that have to do with answering the question of why Jesus was so outraged? Well, what you need to know is the way the temple was designed. It was designed as a series of courts or courtyards. There was the holy place where only the high priest was permitted There was the court of the priests, and only the priests were allowed in there. There was the court of Israel, and only those who had Jewish lineage were permitted to go in there. There was the court of the women. The women worshipped separately. And then there was what was known as the outer court, or the court of the Gentiles, the nations. And it was in the court of the Gentiles that the money changers and the merchants had set up their tables. Now, the rest of the temple could be a place of prayer. But the court of the Gentiles had become a place of commerce, crowding out the opportunity for Gentiles who had proselytized to the Jewish faith to worship God as they ought to. So what has Jesus so bothered? Well, I think it's a combination of all these things. The temple had become a place of commerce instead of a place of prayer. The poor were being exploited. The nations were being excluded. And in response to that, Jesus flexes. He clears out the temple as a show of strength to say, this is my temple. And what's happening here is not honoring to God. Jesus has the right to do so because he is the king. Now, I said that Jesus is a king who is both strong and tender. Look now at verse 14. It says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And this is Jesus all through the Gospels, isn't it? Matthew chapter 4 sums up Jesus' ministry when it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus has compassion for those who are suffering. He invites them to come. He's tender towards them. 
Now, can you see how the Westminster Catechism has it right when it says, how is Christ a king? And then it says, because he rules over us, it's his strength and defends us. That's his tenderness. Jesus is a king who is both strong and tender. And I think we get into trouble whenever we emphasize one of these truths to the exclusion of the other. See, some Christians only seem to want to talk about the tenderness of Jesus. He's gentle and lowly and compassionate towards the hurting. Other Christians want to constantly bring the reminder that Jesus is strong. He will judge sin. He will return, not on a donkey, but, but on a white warhorse with a sword. And I think we need to see these two things operating in perfect harmony. One of my favorite verses or favorite verses and a half in the Old Testament is found in Psalm 62. And there it says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. See, Jesus shows us the perfect combination of that, both his strength and his tenderness, both his power and his love. Jesus is a king who is strong and tender. Second thing we see here is that Jesus is a king who is both humble and exalted. So let's go back to the triumphal entry part for this. Jesus arranges for his disciples to go into this village and get a donkey for the final part of his journey, but why? Now, Jesus and his disciples used a boat for transportation at times, but most often, Jesus' method of transportation was to walk. He would walk from one village or town or city to another. So why the sudden urge to ride a donkey? Now, that journey from Bethpage to Jerusalem was uphill, but this had nothing to do with Jesus being tired. So why choose now as the moment to ride instead of walk? And why a donkey and not a horse? Well, the answer is because Jesus understood that a man's method of transportation tells you something about the man. Now, I drove a bunch of different rental cars for a few years. Most of them were of the small SUV variety. But on one occasion... I spilled a jug of milk in the back of that vehicle. It spilled all over the carpet. It had to be taken in and detailed for a time. And I was given a different type of car as a temporary replacement vehicle. It was a black Chrysler 300 with with blacked out windows. And I got it. As I do from, from Jeff at Canadian Car Truck. And I will not forget that before I drove off the parking lot, he just said to me, Lee, you know, with this one, you probably want to be careful if you're crossing the border. Right now, I understand why he said that, because apparently the Chrysler 300, no offense to any of you who might own one, but the Chrysler 300 is sort of like the chosen vehicle of drug dealers and pimps, Right. A man's method of transportation tells you something about the man. In the same way, Jesus' choice of a donkey tells us something about him. It reveals something about him. Specifically in this context, it tells us something about what kind of king he was coming as. 
Now, the crowd rightly recognized Jesus' choice to ride into the donkey or into, or into the city on this manner on a donkey was the announcement that the king had come. But they mistakenly thought he was coming as a conquering king. He would conquer by force. Now, an entrance into a city like this was not unique to Jesus. Triumphal entries occurred when a king or a general entered a city he had conquered in battle or when he visited a city that belonged to him. The difference is that those kings tended to ride in or those generals on a war horse, a royal steed or a chariot as a display of their power. But listen again to Zechariah's prophecy as we see it in verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble." And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus is not entering the city as a conquering king, or at least not one who will conquer by the usual means. Jesus is entering the city as one who is riding towards his death. Now, the book of Revelation tells us there will come a day when Jesus will return riding a white battle horse with a sword, but first he comes in humility as one who will suffer for the sins of the world. Jesus came in humility. Listen to his own self-description. When he says, come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. That word lowly is the word that Mary uses in her song when she says that God exalts those who are of humble estate. It's the word that Paul uses when he tells us not to be haughty, but to be willing to associate with the lowly. Jesus is a humble king. He comes in humility. But he's also an exalted king. And Matthew paints for us the picture of the royal reception that Jesus received as he rode towards Jerusalem. The first ones to give Jesus the glory he deserved were, was his disciples or his disciples. The disciples, we are told, threw their cloaks on the donkey and made a kind of saddle for Jesus to ride on. Now, kings don't ride bareback. They're too dignified. They sit in a royal saddle. And if Jesus was king, it meant he's too exalted to sit directly on the animal. And so they make this sort of makeshift saddle for him. And there's a little detail in Luke's account that gives us another glimpse of Jesus' disciples giving him glory. In Luke 19.35, it says, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So first they set their cloaks on the colt, and then they set Jesus on top. Now donkeys, especially colts, aren't that tall. So it wasn't like Jesus needed help getting into the saddle. This was a royal way to mount an animal. And you can picture it along the lines of the way that players will sometimes lift up their coach after a victory as a way of exalting him. This is what the disciples are doing for Jesus. The crowd exalts Jesus as well. They lay down their cloaks and their palm branches on the road as a way of saying, look, Jesus is too dignified 
to ride on an ordinary road. We're, putting, we're rolling out the red carpet. So we have these two pictures of Jesus as king. He is humble, and yet he is exalted. And when we read this, or when we think about this, We ought to understand that this entire scene pictures for us or rehearses for us the life and death and ministry of Jesus. Listen to these familiar words from the book of Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is both humble and exalted. And the triumphal entry gives us a glimpse of both. Now, there will come a day when Jesus will be exalted in the fullest sense of that word. But Jesus is a king who is both strong and tender. He's a king who is both humbled, humble and exalted. And Jesus is a king who is both worshipped and rejected. And again, we see both of those responses in this passage. The crowd laying down their cloaks and their palm branches was an act of worship. Listen again to verses 8 and 9. It says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So as Jesus rides along, the crowd spontaneously bursts into song and shouting and acts of worship. The people shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the crowd's praise comes from Psalm 118 and Jesus receives it. Jesus receives their worship. Now, this is not the only time we encounter something like this. John chapter 9 records the story of Jesus healing a man who was blind from birth. The religious leaders are upset with the man because he's testifying that Jesus is the one who has taken away his blindness and healed him. And so they excommunicate him from their synagogue. And Jesus meets the man again, and we read about this exchange. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The point is that Jesus is worthy of worship. All that is ascribed as praise to God can be applied to Jesus. If you fast forward to the book of Revelation, you will discover in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, two chapters that are filled with praise. Chapter 4 pictures the angels praising the one who sits on the throne. 
And chapter 5 depicts the angels praising the Lamb who is Jesus. And then in chapter 5, we get this note that what is said to the one who sits on the throne is the same as what is said to the Lamb. And there John tells us, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Jesus is a king who is worthy of our Worship. In fact, Jesus is the only king who is worthy of our worship. But not everyone worships Jesus. Not then and not now. Listen again to verses 15 and 16. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. See, the kingship of Jesus proves to be a dividing line. We either acknowledge him as king, submit to him and worship him, or we oppose And reject him. Now we've spent the last three weeks looking at Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And each of those three offices calls for a response on our part. To rightfully say that Jesus is our prophet means that we listen to him in whatever he tells us. That his voice is the ultimate voice in our life. It's the one we listen to. To rightfully say that Jesus is our priest means that we trust in his once for all sacrifice on our behalf. It means that we acknowledge our sin and the fact that we could never pay the debt that we owe to God for our rebellion against him. And so we trust in his finished work, his sacrifice in our place to pay for that sin. And to say that Jesus is our king means that we submit to his lordship, his rule in our life, and that we offer him our worship in gratitude. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can say that Jesus is our prophet, that Jesus is our priest, and that Jesus is our king. And God, today we acknowledge that he is worthy of all our worship. And so, Lord, we pray that even as we move through this Easter season, that maybe our hearts would be stirred in a fresh way to remember who we worship, and to remember what you've done for us. We commit ourselves to that end, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.